Welcome to Gleaming the Tube, the podcast where Kevin and Mike watch a film in which somebody rides a skateboard at some point. Finally, a podcast where people talk about movies. Hello, Michael. Hello, Kevin. Next Friday from the year 2000, it's a sequel to the popular 1995 movie Friday, uh, was written by and stars rapper turned actor Ice Cube. Was directed by Steve Carr, and it is inferior to the first Friday by every possible quality metric one can conceive of. <laughs> it's just not a good movie at all. Yet, the first Friday is an excellent movie. A movie that I, that I genuinely yeah. think is great. Let me let me pose this question to you right out because this is all I've been thinking about when I was thinking about this mm-hmm. this recording this particular episode. The thing that's that's in my mind more than anything about skateboarding or about Ice Cube or about this movie at all is what what do you think it is about a sequel that for the most part almost never works? I think comedy sequels in particular yes. fall victim to this because partly I think comedy is built on surprise and I think. I think the first Friday, I think, came at a time when it was almost a reaction to, like, in the early 90s, there was kind of a a subgenre of movie, like, kind of bubbled up with John Singleton's Boys in the Hood and the Hughes Brothers' Menace to Society of, like, like growing up in the hood movies. Like, that was actually, that was absolutely a thing of things that came out in the early yeah. 90s. And I think... uh you know, Ice Cube himself was in uh, Boys in the Hood. And those movies were really good. I saw Menace to Society like four times in the theater. Um, but I think they had certain tropes. And I think, you know, it had a, like a more deliberately parody uh, when the Wayans brothers did uh, Don't Be a Menace to South Central when you, which is more kind of like yes. airplane scary movie style parody. I think Friday is a smarter reaction to it, where Friday takes you know, some of the tropes of that milieu, but just turns it into a hangout comedy. Yeah, right. And and I think what you just said about surprise is sort of, I think, the crux of it. With comedy, it's like when something feels new or interesting or comes comes at a subject in a in a different way and figures out a different way to make you laugh, you'll you'll kind of remember it forever. And then as soon as they trot out the sequel, they're just going to try to go to that same well. And it's just like when you're a little kid and you say something funny in a room in a room of adults and they the adults laugh. So you tr- immediately try to, like, say the same thing again to get the same reaction. I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but as I have, I have, I have young children and I deal with it on a daily basis. Uh, right. Okay. So I, I, one of my core memories is having that happen where I made a joke in front of a room full of my father's coworkers and they, I got this pop, like, they, you know, I made a joke and they were like, help me. And then I tried to say it again and it was like, all right, stop, stop it. <laughs> you know, yeah. 
what is it about comedies that when they're or well, sequels in general, but in comedies, especially like they just they just don't they fail to to live up to the to the original. Now, with with this one, there are some easy things you can point to. Yes. About why it's not as good. I mean, I, I think first and foremost is the absence of Chris Tucker as Smokey, who delivered like a barn burner of a comedic performance in the first one and uh, is kind of explained away in this one as, you know, he went to rehab. Uh, right. Whereas in actuality, he decided to uh, film Rushmore with uh, Rush Hour with Jackie Chan. Um, which let's I, just for a minute, let's just picture Chris Tucker and Rushmore and, yes. and enjoy that visual. Uh, uh, which I think worked out for Chris Tucker, but he's sorely missed. He, he, oh, was, yeah. he was one of the best things about that first movie. And really the chemistry between him and Ice Cube in the first movie was Ice Cube was kind of the straight man. Like Ice Cube, most of what Ice Cube's comedic performances is reacting. Yes. Um, whereas, you know, Chris Tucker was much, much more animated. And, you know, uh, in this one, you know, Mike Epps says Day Day is supposed to fill the Chris Tucker role. And Mike Epps uh, does not hold a candle to Chris Tucker in that movie. Well, right. Especially if you're going to if you're going to base your performance off of reacting to somebody be having Chris Tucker, especially that era, Chris Tucker to react to is you can't go wrong. He's 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 insanely funny in, in the original Friday. Beyond Chris Tucker, the first Friday had like a really deep bench. Like, I think it was one of the first movies that Bernie Mac appeared in. He's not in yes. Next Friday. Uh, Regina King is in it. Regina King is fantastic in the first Friday. She's not in it. Um, you know, there, you do get some returning people. Uh, but, like, John Witherspoon as the dad is, you know, who was very funny in the first Friday, uh, is kind of doing the same stuff in this one. Oh, right. You like, to diminishing returns. Like you said, it's it's saying the same joke again. The The don't go in there for 45 minutes and... You know, it's almost like, you know, there's an element of, you know, if you explain a joke, you kind of kill the life out of it. Right, right. And it's you like when you, it, do yeah. the, when you do the joke again, you're kind of choking it, too. Um, I do like his burrito song, though. <laughs> that, that, was, that, was, that was a high point, yeah. I also noticed that, like, the first Friday was co-written by Ice Cube and DJ Pooh. And uh, this movie was just written by Ice Cube, and it's based on characters created by Ice Cube and DJ Pooh. Um, DJ Pooh does have some voiceover with Ice Cube off the like opening credits, but his his contributions too, I think, are sorely missed. Um, you know, I'm bummed because I love I love the first Friday, and I was you know I fired this one up for the podcast because this is one with skateboarding in it, and I was not pleased watching it. I will I will admit to you that it it did not hold my attention very well. I uh I was like it was a struggle. <laughs> I was like, oh god. Yeah, it's like the pacing is off. The first Friday was funny and kind of misogynistic. And this one uh is not funny and very misogynistic. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Which also, you know, I mean it's it's very easy to be like in in 2023 on the podcast doing well the attitude towards women in next friday is like, <laughs> but it, you know it's there right I, well yeah i mean it, that's it's a little on the nose i mean let's let's yeah. face it but yeah. i mean one could say that uh 
like Ice Cube's musical career, also the added, you know, the attitude towards women is <laughs> it's just deplorable. Um, and I do, I, and I do think Ice Cube has like screen charisma. Like he pops on screen. He's not like a fantastic actor, but I think he's had a very interesting movie career. I, he's probably one of the more successful rapper turned actors. I'd say. I would say, yeah, maybe maybe Ice T is up there. Ice T did as like Ice T found a gear and just stayed in it, and he's yes. done Law and Order. <laughs> For a long time, and I'm sure for a, he's for 400 years. I'm sure, he's cashing a lot of like. I have nothing like. I think Ice T has made some smart moves. Ice. What I find interesting about Ice Cube is he's sort of not done the same thing in movies all the way through. Like he's like I said, he started out as kind of doing a supporting role in Boys in the Hood, you know, and then he did kind of these comedies for a while, and then he started playing around with action movies, and. Uh, then he, you know, he started doing hangout comedies that were maybe a little more mature, like Barbershop. Well, he also does, he does some like kind of like family fair as well, too. Like, yeah, know. I was going to say, and then, then he transitioned to like family movies, like, like, are we there yet? He's done a lot of different types of things. Like Ice-T right. plays one character. Yes. Um, <laughs> but I think part of it is because Ice Cube's usually reacting to other, other stuff while also having some screen charisma, he's able to fit into a lot of different types of movies. Like, you know, he, he's he's funny in, uh, was it 21 Jump Street? Yes. One, one of my favorites, one of my favorite stories is while they were filming the 21 Jump Street movie, uh, Jonah Hill was on a plane with Ice Cube and saw that Ice Cube was watching the first Friday movie and laughing his head off. And <laughs> Jonah Hill asked him about it after and Ice Cube... Like at first, kind of sheepishly was like, "Well, I'm thinking of making another one," and then just kind of, you know, checked himself and went, "But it's some funny shit, man." And I'm like, "Yes, it is. Yeah, it is." And, and I'm, you know what? I'm, I'm glad you're not pretending that you're not like, "Hey, I made this awesome movie, and I, it makes me laugh." Like that's good. Good for you, man. That's some good self awareness. <laughs> Did you see Straight Outta Compton? Like the movie? Yeah. Yeah. I found that movie really interesting. Not that Ice Cube's in it, um, but his son, he's played by his son. Yeah. Uh, O'Shea Jackson Jr. Um, what I found interesting about the Straight Outta Compton movie, this is kind of a tangent, but I'm going to say it anyway, is it's very much like history as written by the winners. Oh, yes. Where oh, yes. Uh, you can tell that Dr. Dre and Ice Cube were very concerned with how they were portrayed in the movie. And were much less concerned with how, say, MC Ren was portrayed in the movie. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, there's uh or there's a of, Yeah, there's a lot of missing stuff in the in the uh in the in the portrayal of Dre. I mean that movie <laughs> that movie uh was wildly entertaining, I thought. Oh yeah, I mean it was really it was really well done, but it was also it was also like wow, you can really tell who's decided what goes in and what doesn't. Yeah, yeah. yeah that was it was uh it was a it was a it was a a bit of a victory lap for the and you know like like a lot of like 12 year old suburban kids uh in the late 80s like those nwa records blew my fucking mind you know i i promise this isn't me sort of retroactively positioning myself as above certain things mm -hmm. it's I think the reason it's entirely possible that the reason those NWA records didn't make quite the same impact on me. And I, I, maybe the timeline is a little messy, 
but I remember hearing those records and thinking they were far more satirical and and like funny. And I think the reason may have been is because I got my hands on the first Ghetto Boys record before I heard NWA. And that record is really heavy. <laughs> it's like it's it's really dark. It's really yeah. dark and it's really heavy, and it does not sound like they are fucking around in any capacity. And so then when I I heard NWA, because there's like skits and there's like funny, you know, like they, those they those records have a sense of humor about themselves. They absolutely do. And I think just, but to me, at the point I was as a kid, I heard that was like, oh, this is like a parody record because I had heard the first Ghetto Boys record, which is like terrifying. Like, I remember feeling like I shouldn't own a copy of that record. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, it's um, like, and also it's it's even like down to the, the well, I think the production is a lot sparser on the Ghetto, the first Ghetto Boys yes. record. Whereas, yeah. um, you know, I, what Dr. Dre was doing on that, like the Straight Outta Compton record by NWA, it's interesting. You listen to that Straight Outta Compton record all the way through, and it's like the first three songs sound like the goddamn apocalypse. And with just like sirens and like things booming. And and as the record goes on and they're kind of like, they're, they really front loaded that record. Right. And I think a lot of it was, you know, a lot of the record was sort of like, well, we, you know, we're going to put in some older stuff that we didn't. So by it, the production gets like less sophisticated and less interesting as you get through the record and then it you know it closes on something to dance to which sounds like it was recorded on a tandy 5000 <laughs> <laughs> that's a rough one it's like, oh. like the production on that it's like it's charming but it's also just like compared to like what the beginning of that record sounds right, like right. versus the end so i also think like from a production standpoint it it sounded just like really i'm talking about like the first three songs basically yeah. but it sounded like little else that was going on outside of like what the bomb squad was doing with public enemy right right the, those those th- that's a that's a good dot to connect because they the, the early public enemy to me does sound a lot like early nwa with the uh the sirens and the and the booming and the boom bap as yes, they say yes and and i yeah. i really liked that style of production i think what what made public enemy different for me was I felt like a lot of successful rappers make it sound effortless. Like there's an effortlessness to the presentation. Whereas with Chuck D it felt like he was working harder than any person has ever worked at anything. Like, because it's so, what he's doing is so important that he's like, like I felt like you could really hear Chuck D sweat in those. Yeah. Public records. And it worked for that. Well, right, because it's it's the import of what he was like. It, the, the, it's so authoritative. Yes, and his, the, his voice was one of the first voices in hip hop where I was like, "Oh, I need to listen to what this person has to say and take it very seriously," because he's it's so it's so commanding, you know. Um, but like Public Enemy are exactly the sort of hip hop group that mainstream rock music journalists wanted hip-hop to be yes yes. they were like yes it's the clash only rap and like they were very excited um so whereas like 
NWA didn't quite fit into those molds, which is why I think kids liked them more. Well, right, because they said dirty shit. You know, like that's yeah. let's face it. I guess those those NWA records are are they're like yeah, you're you're not like you could argue as a suburban white kid, you could maybe argue with your parents about the 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 import and the message of a public enemy record, but if you got caught with an NWA record, you were fucking in trouble. <laughs> like that's yeah, and it's like there's a gleefulness to how offensive the NWA record is, which to me is like very punk rock. And then Ice Cube made next friday which <laughs> and it's is has no gleefulness to it it's just not great and then it, and then you want to talk about a a a lack of gleefulness i uh i had forgotten that the the skater kid roach to bring it around the skateboarding is a young man named justin pierce who was a, a you know a relatively well-known new york skateboarder who was in the movie kids uh, did a couple other things and then committed suicide not long after he was in in Next Friday. You know, we've touched on this a couple of times where it happens a little bit in skateboarding, and I'm sure it happens in, in other subcultures as well, where, you know, you're 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 well known in this very small and specific niche. Like I had, I knew who Justin Pierce was before kids because he was on a he was on a skate team called Zoo York. And they were, it was very like, it was like, there was a time in skateboarding when suddenly the East Coast, the East Coast was always a a, a scene in into a, in and of itself, but not necessarily on a, in a, on a national scale in skateboarding. And then suddenly the East Coast emerged with its own aesthetic. It's very much the Supreme Skate Shop aesthetic and the Zoo York aesthetic, uh, which is just, you know, like the East coast is a little grittier and there's weather to be dealt with. And, you know, it's a more of a hip hop, uh, aesthetic than, than, than early, you know, the California skate aesthetic was, and he was in kids and was very well received in that movie and wanted to make a, a, a career for himself as an actor. And he did some stuff. He did a little TV. Apparently he was on an episode of Malcolm in the middle, which I, I was not aware of. Uh, and then was, you know, his role as Roach was, you know, it was it was pretty robust. He was in a lot of the movie, but he was never able to breach that really niche market. There was a couple of other kids who were also in the movie kids who tried to become actors and sort of like it's like it's too bad. Like the thing that made their performance in kids really good is because it was really naturalistic. They yeah. were just they were just street kids. But it's hard to translate that sometimes to to uh, to other movies, and he was sort of a casualty of that, which is a, sort of. I a mean, I'm, I'm sure we're going to get to kids at some point in the life of this podcast, but like, because it, but where it's it's interesting because like the the women from Kids kind of did go on, like I think Rosario Dawson and Chloe Sevigny, but uh, I I didn't know that about Justin Pierce. That's a fucking bummer. Uh, yeah, it is a bummer. Well, and it's it's it's. It's troublesome too. I mean, it's not so much this way anymore, but I mean, I think it's like that with a lot of those subcultures where it's like you come up in this very, like I said, this very niche, very cool world, and then you 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 do a, a small, very independent film like Kids, and then it blows up, and now you're. It's like you. you 
you're I feel like there's a there's a tendency to not really be considered cool anymore by the people from your subculture because you've ascended into this mainstream Mm -hmm. but you're also not really accepted in you know the larger like the hollywood scene because you were this foul mouth little fuck face in one movie you know one low budget movie and you're i feel like you kind of get trapped i mean it's it it happened to a lot of those dudes like when they did thrashing all of those guys christian asoy and a lot of the people who were on screen as the daggers in that movie thought they were going to become actors and there was not there was no way that was going to be that that wasn't they you know they were they they had a use in the movie they could really skate and they were you know cool looking young kids but i i don't think they were there was ever any question that they were going to sort of like make the leap and it, it a lot of them you know it affect i mean christian asoy had a really really difficult time i you know i'm not saying that's the main reason but i do think it it is when you think you're going to when you think you're going to ascend to this next level and that, and it sort of feels like you don't have a home in either one of those. Does that make sense? It does. I think, I think we've, you know, talked, we've touched on this in the past. I, I think when the episode of Gator, I think yeah, that absolutely yes, came yeah. up. I also think um, it's hard to, like, cause I think this happens with bands a lot of times too. Like when they sign, yes. it's like, you know, you get one green day that comes from the pop, from like the punk rock world and then becomes a big mainstream success. But for that one band, uh, you have a ton of other bands that sort of signed a major label. It, you know, got dropped one record later and are like, you know, well, what the fuck do I do now? And I think right. with skateboarding, it's like there's one Jason Lee who went on to have like kind of a legit acting career. And a lot of other skaters who, like you said, show, showed up in Thrashing or showed up, probably showed up in Grind and thought like okay time to go hollywood and it didn't happen yeah now they have agents and the agents like i, I can't do much with you and that's it's funny you said there's only one jason lee i, re- I remember because i was still you know there, there was there was a point where i wasn't following skateboarding as much as i am now or was when i was a kid but i very distinctly remember in the pages of thrasher magazine they tr- it's almost like they tried to be a little salty about Jason Lee, you know, like like pivoting away from skateboarding in order to be an actor. But it was like within this, the next paragraph, it was like, yeah, but he's so good. You know, he's like, it really, he was, he's so good in the movie that you can't, in Mallrats, that you can't be mad at him. Like, how the fuck are you going to be mad at that performance, you know? And he's not trading on the skateboarding stuff in Mallrats. Right, exactly. And, and he's, and he, and he's, it really was like watching one of us win one, you know, like where like even the even the saltiest people are like, yeah, that was fucking awesome. <laughs> you know, Justin Pierce, not so much. I wanted to ask you, Michael, sure. uh, given uh, that we're discussing a film uh, written by a rapper turned actor uh, that features skateboarding about the connection between hip hop and skateboarding. Oh, man. Well, it's something that sort of, you know, bubble, it, you know, it's, it's, it's actually really interesting. We were talking about public enemy because for a long time, for a long time, California and the, and the, and the, and the skateboarding of 
the 80s. And by that, I mean, basically, I mean the skateboarding of Powell Peralta videos because those Powell Peralta videos, we've discussed them before, they really had sort of like they were the only game in town. And there was this, you know, skateboarding had a very California, very punk rock, very kind of mis like, you know, island of misfit toys aesthetic. And it wasn't until the the, ve- like the very late 80s and very early 90s when, and it's like, it's like I said a little earlier, where suddenly the East Coast aesthetic, which was fully formed on the East Coast, sort of suddenly became a little, uh, you know, a little, had a little bit more stock in the big, in the larger world of skateboarding. And I think one of the reasons for that is because when we've discussed Steve Rocco and world industry skateboards a little bit before, I think I'm going to do a, a link to his, to, to the, um to the documentary about him because he, in a way, he's sort of the guy who broke it wide open in that the Powell videos were these pretty big production videos, but they had incidental music that was produced for the purposes of those videos so that they didn't need to clear rights or anything. And Steve Rocco was sort of the first guy. He was the guy who was bringing on much younger kids, first of all, to be sponsored, maybe not pro, but sponsored. And second of all, he encouraged the kids that he brought on not to just be them, their natural selves. They weren't wearing Powell Peralta branded clothes and riding Powell Peralta branded boards and, you know, and everything that, the, you know, that, that Powell had sort of a, a built in aesthetic. He basically brought on w- what skateboarders actually are, which are street kids. They're kids who grow up and live and spend most of their time in the streets and once that aesthetic happened with you know for the company world industries people all of a sudden you i remember being a kid and suddenly recognizing myself in these skate videos that they 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 the, uh, world industries made a skate video called rubbish heap where it was like street kids listening to hip hop music and wearing ratty baggy clothes and suddenly, you know, it was it was a lot more akin to what I saw growing up on the real, you know, on the streets in on the East Coast. And I think that once that happened in the late 80s and early 90s, and it kind of opened up the the idea of like, oh, Pete, there are kids from all over the country who don't necessarily necessarily need to emulate these California pros and suddenly there were kids listening to rap music skateboarding and it makes so much sense you know what i mean it's like there's a certain attitude of skateboarding there's a certain you know fashion and a certain sort of like way of carrying yourself that's way more of a hip hop aesthetic i think well maybe that's not exactly true i might back myself out of that a little bit i just mean that suddenly it seemed that there was like skateboarding had room for a lot a lot more different cultures than just you know skulls on your shorts and punk rock and and that sort of aggressive california powell peralta aesthetic and skateboarding and the cool thing was is that at the time 
the New York scene was tight knit enough that, you know, you had rappers just flat out giving permission for skate videos to use their songs because it meant it would, this, the song would reach this, like this, this built in audience. Whereas, you know, in the Powell videos, like I said, they, they, they would do a lot of like sort of self-made incidental music so that they wouldn't have to deal with that. And then the, the, the world industries aesthetic was that, you know, that, you know, that aesthetic in the nineties of like stealing logos and repurposing them for, you know, for other things that, that was very much a world industries aesthetic where it was like, fuck you and your lawsuits. We don't have any money. You can't sue us, you know? Yeah. And then, and then you know when you a rave called quest michael that's exactly that's that's exactly it and so you you know a lot of the new york the the east coast centric skate videos started just flat out asking local rappers can you you know can and and skaters would appear in their videos and the the rappers would put their songs in skate videos and it became like kind of a a much more close-knit thing you know it's funny because I I think about it all the time. Like I when I got into skateboarding, it was the like the 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 late eighties, and I certainly liked the aesthetic of the skull jams and the you know the the Tony Hawk haircut. But as it transitioned into the nineties, and I found myself a huge fan of hip hop music, it was really interesting to suddenly like oh you start to see black kids skateboarding and, and Spanish kids skateboarding and Asian kids skateboarding. And, and, you know, and now suddenly we're listening to the Ramones and public enemy and Del the funky homo sapien, Del the funky homo sapien, by the way, uh, uh, in, um, in San Francisco was like deeply connected to the skate scene in, in San Francisco in the nineties. So, you know, that's, that's where that sort of all came from. And it reached its full flower in next Friday. In next Friday, when those two worlds came together <laughs> for a comedy sequel. So I have uh, some shit to plug, I guess, yeah. of some other extracurriculars I've been doing that I'm going to talk about right now. Uh, last week, I joined those lovable rap scallions at Dragon Con's American Science Fiction Classics track. We're an online panel where once again in March, we argued, uh, we did a battle of the fictional bands. This was about solo artists. Um, so who is the greatest fictional solo artist? So like Rex Manning from Empire Records and uh, Ralph the Dog and, uh, you know, people of that ilk. So that is on the Sci-Fi Classics Facebook page. It's on their YouTube channel. I think it's in podcast form now. I was very, very glad to hear that my boy Ralph got some shine. I love Ralph. And uh, this week, which will probably come out before this, after we record, but before it gets released, uh, we're doing bands again. Uh, although, we, like, people who've, like, won, who, like, have won a bunch of times have been retired. So, like, Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem will not be competing this year because they've, yeah, been, see that. they've been elevated to the Hall of Fame because they're just, because <laughs> Muppets are, got, like, who doesn't want to vote for a fucking Muppet? Um, so that I was on a podcast called Wait You Haven't Seen, which I think I talked about like doing, but that's out now where I'm talking about Mulholland Drive with TV's Travis. Um, I try not to sound too pretentious, but I'm talking <laughs> about David Lynch, so I don't always succeed. 
So fair warning there. Well, that sounds fantastic. Thank you for listening. Our website is gleamingthetube.net. We're on Facebook at Gleaming the Tube, and our email is gleamingpod at gmail.com. Production assistance by Liam Gray. Music by Kissing Contest. Skateboarding is not a crime. Skateboarding is not a crime.